Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and we have a special guest, Doug Bandow. Before introducing our guest, I do want to add a post-recording insertion that is a little bit of an apology. When we originally recorded the episode, it was in May of 2018, and the episode is now launching in July because of our schedule. And so we were unable to ask Doug about events that were about to take place because we didn't know they were going to take place. So while we tried to get Doug back on the podcast, we were unable to do so due to scheduling conflicts. And we hope this explanation will explain why there seems to be a discrepancy between what Doug is talking about, uh, particularly with North Korea. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the policy magazine Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune Magazine, National Interest, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Times. Bandow also speaks frequently at academic conferences on college campuses and to business groups, and he's here today to talk with us also about foreign policy. Doug, thanks for being with us. Doug, thanks for being with us. Happy to be on. So one of the things that I think libertarian Christians often want to know is what should we think about things like foreign policy? The Bible has a lot to say about how we treat our neighbor. It has a lot to say about war, uh, about tribal violence and, and kingdoms and things like that. And then there's this tricky business of what do we do with the state of Israel? And there's just a lot of there's a lot of thought out there in the libertarian space. And I wanted to have you on to talk about what exactly should we think as libertarians and as Christians in terms of, you know, how do we approach the whole idea of foreign policy? A lot of us aren't in administrations making decisions. We we basically, you know, many of us are just people who have opinions about what our politicians ought to do. Uh, So we have the little bit of luxury of not, it's not like a personal issue where we're like, you know, disobeying the Lord by acting in a certain way. But we do want to have the right opinions about how we should treat other people that we will never meet and that are on the other side of the globe. So how do we kind of think about foreign policy as Christian libertarians? Well, I think that foreign policy tends to be highly prudential. You know, James told us that if we ask for wisdom, we'll get it. And it strikes me it's an area where we really do need to have a lot of wisdom, that uh, trying to figure out, you know, nation states dealing with nation states is a much more complex creature. And Scripture strikes me as telling us an awful lot about how we treat one another as individuals and kind of families. It tells us a lot about our relationship with God and our responsibilities to God. It just doesn't have a lot there in terms of how you organize a foreign policy. In particular, the world in which it was written had virtually nothing to do with today's world. I mean, you know, the focal point was the ancient state of Israel, which had a unique role in terms of, as a, in a sense, a godly state. And then the world in which Jesus preached in, of course, was under the rule of Rome. You know, neither of these give us many examples for what the U.S. should do, say, in the Middle East, or what you do about China or North Korea or a number of other things. So I think the first point is simply prudence. 
that you know, there's no easy answer on this stuff, that a lot of these things, I don't think there's a particularly Christian outlook. I think you know, there's the libertarian principles a bit more, I think, than Christian principles. The second point is that I think we look for principles and then try to figure out loosely how to apply them. On the Christian side, you know, treating people with love and dignity does suggest some ways in organizing a nation state and what its agenda should be. It's pretty hard to imagine a Christian advocating a policy of genocide. I don't know how one would you know, try in any way to justify that. Certainly some of the policies that we have followed would have to raise, I think, some alarm bells. I mean, if you ally with an authoritarian state, there may very well be some important prudential issues there. It may be the question of, you know, what's worse rather than, you know, I mean, there, there are no good options. So you choose the, the lesser of two evils, as we put it. Nevertheless, you know, there should always be that concern or recognition that sometimes these principles are put at very high, a very tough test. On the libertarian side, I think it's a little easier in the sense that to the extent we see political principles of liberty, you know, kind of, of uh, a restrained state of constitutional liberties, these kinds of things, all of that argues generally, I think, for a more restrained foreign policy, though in any particular case, it doesn't tell us exactly what to do. Clearly, a government can be under attack, a people can be under attack, war might be necessary. Nevertheless, it does offer cautions in terms of promiscuous war making. And when you put together a sense of, you know, human beings are uh, sinful, you know, they're imperfect, and then you take into account Lord Acton's you know, famous aphorism, which I think really sums up libertarian thought, that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Putting sinful human beings into political structures of great power and allowing them free reign in the, you know, the international you know, kind of uh, you know, world is probably a dangerous thing, that one wants to come up with restraints on that if one can. Doug, when I think back to the, let's say the 2000s, just kind of that whole decade, the George W. Bush years, what we really saw was the, the reign of the neoconservatives in the formation of our foreign policy. But I've actually been encouraged over the last, let's say, even just throughout the Obama administration onward into the Trump administration, not because of them, but just the general attitude in the American consciousness seems to be shifting away from that, at least at least amongst those on the right. We seem to be getting back a little bit more towards uh, non-intervention diplomacy. There's still a lot of warmongers, no doubt. But it, it seems to me like maybe we're moving in a better direction and amongst Christians uh, who unfortunately in the Bush years tended to be some of the biggest cheerleaders for war are, are kind of backing away from that now. Do you, what, what's your take on that? Do you get that sense or do you maybe see it a little differently? Well, I think there's widespread popular frustration with that era, you know, but it's not clear that the politicians have you know, got it down. I mean, uh, you know, the president, to his credit, was very critical and basically said, he didn't want anybody in his administration who supported the Iraq war. And then, of course, he appointed as secretary of state and national security advisor people who supported the war. Uh, you know, I mean, John Bolton, the national security advisor, continues to support the war and believes it was a, a right decision. So the, the, this kind of odd sense in which political leadership tends to have a, t a tough time getting the message. And while neoconservatives, I think, to some degree, you know, were discredited Intellectually, they, they maintain extraordinary influence, you know, positions at think tanks, you know, writing positions. And you look within the Obama years, I do think that President Obama was far more cautious 
in the use of military than President Bush. Nevertheless, he was quite busy with the military. I mean, he twice increased troop levels in Afghanistan. He uh, you know, basically was responsible for what I view as kind of a debacle in Libya that's turned out to be one of the strongest arguments against you know, smaller countries giving up nuclear weapons. They saw what happened there. You know, he wanted to get us involved in Syria. You know, that, and while he didn't want to get fully involved, he certainly got us involved over the years. So I don't think it's left. I think that temptation to intervene has long been a very strong one. I've often heard it said that we ought to have a strong military presence around the world because, you know, we're we're the quote unquote good guys. We're the ones who, you know, kind of have a higher ethic in some sense. You know, maybe it's just, you know, Western ideas that people think are just better than whatever else the world has, which is kind of weird in, in my book. Uh, it's a lot of hubris there. But why is that possibly not a good idea to take? I mean, we we can deal with the fact that, you know, just everybody ramping up with more nuclear weapons is probably not the direction we want to go. But I mean, there, it's possible that there's an argument to be made that the that we're the the only we're the least bad cop on the global platform. Well, one could certainly argue simultaneously that the U.S. is relatively better than others. At the same time, that doesn't mean you want to. To trust the United States to do everything correctly. I, mean, I think when we think about the temptations of power, there's no limit on who is tempted. I think one sees you know, people of goodwill who get enormous power can do some really awful stuff. I would point to Yemen today. My view is the U.S. is complicit in murder. The U.S. is supporting a totalitarian state, Saudi Arabia, that invaded its neighbor not for defense, but because it wanted a pliable puppet regime next door. And the U.S. is providing munitions. The U.S. is providing refueling services and targeting assistance, every human rights group that is out there believes that Saudi Arabia is responsible for the vast majority of civilian deaths in Yemen. I mean, the country's falling apart, cholera epidemic, I mean, malnutrition, I mean, all this stuff, and the U.S. is part of that. And I'd say it's not as if people in Washington are sitting around saying, we want to hurt people, but they've made strategic and political decisions based on this sense of, well, we've got to be there, we've got to back an ally, yada, yada that are you know, resulting in, I think, horrific results that over the long term are actually bad for our security as well. I think the ultimate question here is, what is the job of the U.S. government? And we, want to, we need to be very careful in these assumptions that we get to run the globe. I mean, the U.S., let's be very blunt, the U.S. has made an utter hash of it. The notion that American policymakers have done much of anything right in the Middle East, I think, is a fantasy. I mean, Iraq was a disaster. Libya is a disaster. Syria is a disaster. Yemen's a disaster. I mean, you know, which of these are turning out well to suggest the U.S. has some you know, extraordinary ability, whatever its intentions? You know, where is the capability? Where is the competence to look ahead, to figure out the future? Christians, I think, tend to be skeptical of social engineering at home. They realize, you know, the kind of human beings are made in the image of God, have their own sets of desires, you know, have, have within them the ability to do good things, but also this sense of evil, the sense of sinful nature. The notion that the state can show up and fix everything is clearly wrong. Well, why do we assume that internationally? Why do we assume the U.S. can show up in, I don't know, Kosovo or show up in Libya or show up wherever, and we're going to fix it all? We're going to put in a government. They're going to love us. You know, we've been in Afghanistan for you know, 18 years almost, or 17 years, around that trying to create a you know, liberal democracy there. You know, this strikes me again as another fantasy that uh, you know, it's, it's hard to justify prudentially. It's hard to justify on moral grounds, and the, you know, especially given the cost in human terms 
to Americans and then add to that the financial cost, you know, what is the justification? What do you make of the argument that mostly it's conservatives, I think, that make this argument, but basically anybody who kind of supports a strong foreign policy in the sense that, you know, we can be as interventionist as we want. What do you make of this this idea that, well, you know, the president and his advisors have top secret information that, you know, if we if some of us knew what that was, we'd probably be like, oh, well, okay, now we know why you did this. And therefore, it makes complete sense. And thank you for keeping us safe very much. Well, of course, that turns out to have been a complete fraud when it came to Iraq. You know, they had all this wonderful information. It turns out it was all false. You know, all the claims that he had all these nuclear weapons and was going to do a dangerous stuff turned out to be completely false. You know, so the question is, well, now what? I mean, if what you do is you launch this invasion, I mean, if you look at the Iraq invasion, realize what it brought us. I mean, it killed, I mean, the estimates are somewhere between 200,000 and a million Iraqis. You know, and the top number strikes me as too many. But even if it's 200,000, I mean, it's an extraordinary number. We didn't kill them, but we blew the place apart, triggered a sectarian war. Half of that would be reproachable. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean it, it's monstrous. I mean, there is a Christian you know, community of something like 1.2, 1.3 million uh, before the war started. I mean, most of those people have been forced out. A lot of them have gone to Kurdistan. A lot of them have gone to Syria. I mean, that's one reason why religious minorities have supported Assad. They saw the movie. They didn't like how it ended in Iraq. You kick out the, you know, the secular dictator and all the crazy people show up and start killing Christians. That's on the U.S. There would be no ISIS but for America's invasion of Iraq. You know, ISIS grew out of al-Qaeda Iraq. You know, it grew out of the resistance movement that only exists because we blew the place apart. We put in power a sectarian government there that was so bad a lot of Sunnis turned to ISIS, of all things, in resistance. I mean, you, you go one after another. In Iran, you're worried about Iranian influence. Well, guess where it came from? We took out the anti-Iranian leader of Iraq. No surprise. They're both Shia countries. They have relationships. So to me, that, just, that, that kind of blows apart the argument that somehow folks sitting in Washington have know anything. I mean, the, the problem is they got lots of things wrong. I have a friend who worked at the State Department, and he was in their intelligence service. And he said, when we went in there, U.S. officials didn't even know the role of Ayatollah Sistani, who is the most important Shiite cleric in Iraq. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this guy was hugely important, massive following. We had no clue. Bremer shows up and wants to have caucuses. He doesn't want to have an election. And then Sistani's the one who said, no, 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 we want elections. I mean, suddenly the whole thing is revolutionized. So I, the problem with that is that you know, we would not trust leaders in any other context. And we have to remember, these are imperfect human beings. They have biases. They have limits. You know, they're chosen for national office, not because they know anything about the world. I mean, whatever you think about Donald Trump, the one thing we know is he didn't get chosen because he actually knows anything about North Korea or about Iraq or about Syria. I mean, to the extent that he had knowledge, it was about domestic, not about international. Why do we assume then that he's getting all this great information and is going to make all the right decisions. Doug, you had mentioned Saudi Arabia and and Yemen. And, you know, one of the things that's just amazed me over the years is how we're constantly being told by the talking heads and the bureaucrats that this is this is basically about fighting some uh, some notion of radical Islamic theocracy that's trying to come take over America. But like you said, Iraq, for example, under Saddam Hussein, was a secular regime. 
Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia, which is probably the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world, uh, is is the most repressive Islamic theocracy. And yet that's where we have the best relations. But Saudi Arabia, like, th- th- there are no Christian churches even in Saudi Arabia. It's illegal to have a Christian church in Saudi Arabia. Now, th- there was just a, an announcement, I think, within the past couple of weeks where the Vatican is negotiating to put some Catholic churches in Saudi Arabia. But as of right now, there there are no Christian churches. And Saudi Arabia routinely still cuts people's heads off in in a public venue. So what is it behind this, how they can tell us, oh, watch out for this Islamic theocracy that's coming to kill you. Meanwhile, the number one U.S. ally in in the Arab world is a repressive Islamic theocratic regime. Well, Saudi Arabia is a great embarrassment for us. I mean, if you look at any, almost any level of individual liberty, you know, what you will find is that Iran is well ahead of Saudi Arabia. Iran allows churches. Iran allows synagogues. Now, if you're a religious minority in Iran, life is not good. But, I mean, there's a longstanding Jewish community there, a longstanding Christian community. As you indicated, these do not exist in Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a complete totalitarian political dictatorship. There's no elections. You know, Iran has elections. I mean, these are not free. These are not ones we would like. Nevertheless, they choose leaders that actually have some authority, both president and the uh, legislature. Yeah, there's nothing like that in Saudi Arabia. So it's an embarrassment to us. And especially on the issue of terrorism, 15 of 19 9-11 terrorists came from Saudi Arabia. It's widely understood that a lot of Saudi money, now not from the government, but nevertheless, a lot of Saudi money went to al-Qaeda. The problem here, it shows this you know, sense of the kind of practicality run riot. That is, oh, they have oil. Oh, my goodness. You know, we have to be nice to them. And it, to my mind, it's one thing to say, we'll deal with them. That's the reality. It's the real world. We deal with them. It's quite another to talk about how wonderful they are. You know, you invite the king to your ranch. You hold hands with him. I mean, all these expressions of how wonderful we think they are. And this is, this is one of those weird areas where President Trump, when he ran for office, was very critical. And now in office, he seems completely besotted by them, that uh, you know, they can't do any wrong. And I think, you know, again, it shows why you have to use prudence here, which is, yeah, sometimes, look, in World War II, you're dealing with two you know, rival, horrendous totalitarian powers, Nazi Germany, you know, Joseph Stalin, Soviet Union. Which of them is more immediately dangerous? And I think the correct answer was Nazi Germany. So you've got to deal with it. But that doesn't mean you go out there and talk about how wonderful the Soviets are. And you realize the challenge that they're going to pose. And I think we haven't really addressed that with Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia is an enormous problem. You know, the whole question of Yemen, I think we're going to have problems there from years to come. Yemenis now view us as an aggressor. I'm worried about terrorism ultimately coming out of that. You know, that war that they started is basically taking attention away from al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula, which is the most active al-Qaeda chapter out there. The Houthis didn't like al-Qaeda, but they're busy fighting the Saudis. You know, and what with the Saudis have actually helped al-Qaeda and some of the other radical forces because they're anti-Houthi. You know, so we have really damaged our own you know, security in terms of terrorism, working with a totalitarian regime against people who, you know, I'm not a particular fan of the guys on the Yemeni side, but they've done nothing against us. Now, what about these Iran sanctions? That's another thing that seems to also tie into the Saudi issue, because the Saudi government seems to be pushing uh, our government, the U.S. government, towards sanctioning uh, Iran. And of course, the 
those war drums have have been beaten on for for quite some time. And then we had this whole issue with scrapping the Iran deal. Can you kind of untangle that for us? Well, nobody really wants Iran to have nuclear weapons. But I think what's important is to realize American intelligence agencies unanimously concluded that Iran has not had an active nuclear program since 2003. You know, I think what everybody more or less thinks the Iranians have been after is kind of to be a potential nuclear state. That is, you know, to have the ability if they thought it was necessary. You know, it's interesting, the documents that you know, Netanyahu pushed out there, which most people were aware of beforehand, suggest that even when the Iranians were talking about nuclear weapons, they were talking about having like five. I mean, you're not launching a war of aggression, say, with five. You're looking at deterrence. You know, they live in a dangerous world. So the first thing to realize is, if you're Iranian, the U.S. has been an enemy of yours for decades. In 1953, the U.S. was held, you know, partially behind a coup d'etat, overthrew basically a democratically elected leader, put in power the Shah of Iran, who was a real thug. You know, he got thrown out, and unfortunately, the people who actually got rid of him were the crazy people. I mean, it was, and it was kind of a broad-based revolution, but the kind of Islamists took over. But the U.S. backed Saddam Hussein in 1980s when he launched this horrible war against Iran. You know, we, we view ourselves as being anti Hussein, we are actually pro-Hussein. I mean, there's a wonderful photo that shows uh, Reagan administration officials and our former Secretary of Defense over in, you know, in Baghdad talking to Hussein during that war, offering Reagan administration support. You know, so from the Iranian standpoint, I mean, during that conflict, we even shot down an Iranian airliner, a civilian airliner, because we thought, well, it was going to be, you know, it must be a plane attacking one of our ships, and it wasn't. You know, so there's a history there. You can understand the Iranians themselves have reasons for some paranoia. It's a bad regime. Nobody wants them to have nukes. But the problem is what the Saudis are doing, they have their own game going on. This is a Sunni-Shia struggle. So unfortunately, they want us to play their game. What's striking is, you know, the crown prince who kind of play acts like he's a reformer, even as he arrests people back in his home country. He was on 60 Minutes and you know, he accused the leader of Iran of being like Adolf Hitler, which... You know, I mean, it's complete nonsense. I mean, Adolf Hitler ran a country, the most militarized, most economically advanced, most populous country in the center of Europe. You know, he accused this guy of being like Adolf Hitler, but then he admitted Iran is nothing like Saudi Arabia. Smaller economy, doesn't spend much on the military, small army. And you wonder, well, why is Saudi Arabia afraid? And I think the basic issue is this, that while I don't like the theology of the Iranians, I mean, this the whole kind of radical Islamic thing. Yeah, that's still more believable than Saudi Arabia, which has an absolute monarchy. Who would want to die for the absolute monarch? I mean, the, the crown prince spent a half billion dollars on a yacht. You know, he spent like $350 million on a chateau in France. I mean, who would be loyal to this kind of a system? So Saudi Arabia's problem is that it loses compared to other countries because it's based on something that's so completely ridiculous in a way that Iran is more dangerous because it has some consistent philosophy or theology there. It's wrong, and Christians understand how wrong. Nevertheless, it's more persuasive than what the Saudis have. We need to make sure we're not kind of the cat's paw of other countries there. Iran is at best a medium regional power opposed by almost every other country in the region. So the question is, why don't they handle this? Why do we have to handle this? Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. 
So let's kind of go to a different corner of the globe and talk about something that's uh, also uh, pretty recent in our minds. You know, on Facebook, everybody was praising Trump for uniting the North and South Korean countries. So depending on, you know, like when someone's listening to this episode, you know, this might be relatively recent news or maybe this will all be irrelevant. and Maybe, you know, we'll have world peace by the time by the time, you know, this episode airs uh, because Trump is so fantastic, of course. Hashtag sarcasm. So. Yeah, what's going on with North Korea? Like it was all of a sudden, everybody was like, "Look at Trump! He united them!" And now it's like, "Ah, oh, cancel the meeting." Um, and you can give fill in some of the details there because I'm pretty sure my summary was very, very surfacey. Well, like the, the problem with North Korea runs back seventy years. I mean, you know, the Korean Peninsula is an issue going back to the end of World War II. The peninsula had been controlled by the Japanese, the U.S., and Soviet Union. Divided it for occupation purposes, that resulted in two different countries. You know, they fought a war from 1950 to 1953, which China got involved in. Since then, the U.S. has maintained troops there, and basically they've had their own Cold War. I mean, it's been pretty ugly. So the North Koreans have un- unabashedly been seeking a nuclear weapon. You know, and this, this goes back you know, 20, 25 years. Again, it's not. The thing to realize about the North Koreans, I like to tell people, I mean, they're evil, but they're not crazy. I mean, you know, there's an image that has been built up. I mean, a lot of that came out of, say, Team America. I mean, the father of the current dictator, you know, had the bouffant hair, big sunglasses, platform shoes. You know, it's easy to make fun of him. But the North Koreans, in my view, are eminently rational. They plot a weekend very, very well. I've been there twice. I was there last June, and I was there 25 years before. I mean, this is not a place that any of us would want to live. But there's no evidence they're suicidal. The point is, you know, these folks have all lived their lives to suggest they want their virgins in this world, not the next. You know, they're not sitting around saying, oh, can I blow up the world and get myself killed? So it's, a, it's an evil place, but it's, you know, there's no particular reason to think they're behaving irrationally. They see the U.S. as a threat. The world has passed them by. South Korea has like 45 times the GDP. It's backed by the globe superpower. China and Russia, you know, neither one of them want to go to war to save the you know, North Koreans. So North Koreans really are quite alone. So the reason they're building nukes, I think, is primarily deterrence. It gives them status too. It's kind of an internal thing. It rewards the military. But we shouldn't be viewing this as, oh, they plan on starting a nuclear war. So then the question is, how do you try to get rid of nukes? We've tried negotiating over the years. We've tried sanctions. We've tried threats. Nothing has ever happened. And what we've seen recently is Trump, to his credit, has put an emphasis on this issue. Well, Obama kind of didn't want to deal with it because nobody found it fruitful to deal with the North Koreans. I mean, nobody ever seemed to get anywhere. And, you know, I thought the summit is a long shot, but what the heck? I mean, better to talk than not. I mean, Winston Churchill once said, you know, better to jaw-jaw than war-war. That what you, you know, to have that conversation, to look for options, to try to come up with alternatives, makes sense. Unfortunately, that seems to have fallen apart. And I think there are complex reasons. I mean, one of which is, you know, the president apparently accepted this invitation without bothering to talk to his advisors, a lot of whom really didn't want to see it happen. I think John Bolton, national security advisor, you know, particularly was one who didn't want to see it happen. I mean, the second problem is I think we got a lot of it through the South Koreans, who for the mo- I think were probably mostly worried because they were scared Trump actually would start a war. And if he did, South Korea, of course, would be the battleground. So they were kind of pushing all of this perhaps telling both sides what they thought the other sides wanted to hear, when in fact, you know, the U.S. and North Korea hadn't been talking at that point, you know, which could have been one of the problems. I think in recent, what has happened is Bolton and others in the administration have been emphasizing, well, we want the Libya model, but the result of the Libya model was 
you know, in 2003, Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons. Eight years later, the U.S. and Europeans took him out, essentially, you know, once he'd given up his nuclear weapons. You know, at the time, the North Koreans pointed to that and said, we're never going to be stupid enough to be tricked like that. So to have administration officials talking about the Libya model, I think was not very helpful. And the response was a couple of weeks ago, North Korea gave one of its invective-filled you know, commentaries, which you know, the president complained that they were showing hostility and anger, which is quite true, they were. You know, I think it's very unfortunate that uh, what I'm worried about is the president may go back to threatening to go to war, but that would be a disastrous option. You know, the North Koreans have the ability to destroy Seoul, capital of South Korea. It's about 35 miles from the border. And if they are able to put a nuclear weapon on top of a missile, and we don't know their exact capabilities, they almost certainly can't hit us. They're not that advanced. But they could hit Seoul and they could hit Tokyo. So, I mean, if you start a war over there, it's going to be the most horrendous thing possible. To my mind, this is one of those things we've got to play out the diplomatic options, got to look for peaceful options. You contain them, you deter them. We don't need troops there. South Korea could do that. We need to be looking about options for transforming how we deal with it. But war is simply not the option. We've got to look through other means. What are your opinions on Trump's prospect of going in any positive direction for our foreign policy from a libertarian perspective? Oh, to the extent he does so, it's accidental. I mean, my frustration is he has some ideas that make a lot of sense, but he doesn't have anybody around him who believes in them, and he won't force them. You know, for example, there's no reason we need to be in NATO. The Europeans are well able to defend themselves. I mean, they have like 10, 12 times the GDP of Russia, three times the population you know, if Germany is only spending 1.22% of GDP on its military, that's, which is what it's doing, they obviously don't, aren't worried. I mean, if you do that, you don't actually think there's a threat. Well, if you don't think there's a threat, why are we there? He's made these points. I mean, I would have done it rather differently. I wouldn't you know, show up at a summit meeting shoving aside other officials and stuff, which he did do. But still, he's made the right point. But unfortunately, there isn't enough follow-through because the people around him just aren't interested in doing it. I mean, it's the same thing in terms of South Korea. He's raised the question of why do we have troops there when South Korea has has so much greater strength economically, population, et cetera. Why do we need ground forces in South Korea when it has, you know, twice the population, when it's so much richer? I mean, those kind of things. He's asked those questions and they make sense, but he hasn't had a follow through. So that leaves me very frustrated. And then on issues like Syria, he really wants to get out. Well, he's going to have to order them to get out. But he hasn't so far. Afghanistan as well. He seemed to have the right sense. Why are we there 17 years after we started, you know, where we threw out the Taliban, where we got, you know, Al-Qaeda has been wrecked. Why are we still there? Nevertheless, he wasn't willing to tell everyone around him, I want us out, let us get out. That's the only way we're going to get these results. But he doesn't seem to have that. He likes to pose as a decisive leader, but when he actually has to be decisive, he fails the test. Now, Doug, I do think we need to swing back to the Middle East just to briefly discuss the recent opening of the new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. Now, for our listeners, I'm sure we have a lot of people that come from different perspectives on how they view Israel in their theology, a lot of different ways that that can be looked at, a lot of differences of opinion even amongst our organization. But just looking at it from a foreign policy perspective, uh, how should we view that and What's your take on it? Well, look, you know, the challenge of dealing with Israel, I think, is that you've got a, a country there that has had a very bad relationship with countries around it. Understandably, there have been wars, etc. I think the issue of 
you know, Palestinians to occupy Palestinian territory for 50 odd years. I mean, it should not surprise one that there's a hostile relationship. You know, nobody would want to be you know, occupied for 50 years. I think the settlements is a big issue. I mean, we have to realize that from the standpoint of Palestinians, there's colonization. I mean, they, as that's how they look at it. I, I would encourage American Christians to talk to Palestinian Christians. I visited the West Bank. I've talked to Christians there. I've talked to American Christians, one of whom, he was a policeman here. He went and married a Palestinian woman. But you start talking about their perspectives. You talk about talk to in, indigenous Christians, you know, what they go through, et cetera. It does give one a perspective that I think is very important. I mean, Israel obviously has, I think, a much greater moral claim than dictatorships around it. Nevertheless, I think what happens in the occupied territories is a very real challenge. You know, the question of changing the capital, what we recognize as the capital, the, the difficulty there is the U.S. for years has posed as kind of an independent power that's willing to, you know, try to moderate and bring peace. And the thing is, getting involved like that shows we aren't. I mean, most Palestinians, I, I don't think, viewed us as being an objective power anyway. So in that sense, it, you know, perhaps it doesn't matter very much. But the problem is Jerusalem is such a high-profile emotional issue. You know, my view was, we all know that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I mean, that's no change. You know, the different difficulty is if the U.S. is going to make that recognition, it would have made sense to make that recognition as part of some kind of a peace you know, settlement, that to make that decision now is essentially throwing away a very important card to the extent you're trying to bring Israelis and Palestinians together. You know, both sides are going to have to make compromises. I think when we think of Israel, what we need to recognize is what Israelis as well as Palestinians most need is peace. That uh, the Israeli state will be safer if you can come up with a peace agreement. The Israeli state will be safer if people and you know, Palestinians are going to be satisfied with their living conditions in their situation. Over the long term, you know, demography is a real challenge. I mean, at some point there will be more Arabs than Jews between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And the question is, what do you do? I mean, how do you maintain an Israel that's both Jewish and democratic? You know, these are kind of internal challenges that have, you know, very important external implications. Only Israel can figure that out. The U.S. can't. But some of the decisions that we make might bias them in the wrong direction. Do you think that there's a problem with, and, and I'll generalize this in, in, in a way, do you think there is an issue with Christians having a particular view of how the, the end of the world is going to take place that affects foreign policy in a negative way? Oh, yeah. I think that there, I mean, especially, um, you know, we, I think we all know which, which eschatology, you know, tends to move in that direction. The danger is, I, what I worry is a couple of different things, one of which is Christians who seem to believe that God can't get the job done unless they help. You know, so the only way that we can have Jesus come back, and we can accelerate that if we just get the U.S. government to do the right thing, which in this case is a particular foreign policy and its attitude towards Israel. And I think that's, I mean, that's hubristic. I think that's blasphemy. You know, this God will get his job done. The notion that the U.S. government should be dominated by a theology and its foreign policy, I also think is a huge mistake. The U.S. government is simply not a religious institution. And you can't make that, that kind of a decision. And the, the danger with the theology, of course, is that, frankly, we don't know. I mean, people go to extraordinary effort on Revelation. I mean, years ago, I'm old enough to remember when people were saying that Prince Charles was going to be the Antichrist, or that it was the Europe, it was, I think it was before the European Union, then it was the common market, when the common market hits 10 or something. And you're sitting there, you know, explaining about the locusts, or those helicopters. You listen to that and you think, 
my goodness, you want me to make foreign policy based on these kinds of interpretations that change? You know, every couple of years, somebody's going to write a new book with a somewhat different interpretation. And I was supposed to follow that as well. I mean, I think that's very dangerous. And I don't think that it's, you know, I mean, that, you know, think of the poor Israelis. I mean, you know, to the extent that Israelis think some of the people who support them, you know, do so because essentially they hope there's going to be the war of Armageddon that's going to kill most of them. I mean, gee whiz. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty odd, you know, thing for kind of Jews in Israel to think about in terms of where support in America is coming from. So I think we want to be real cautious with that. As I was becoming a libertarian over the past uh, decade or so, I would often listen to people like Scott Horton. And Scott Horton talks fast, and he is just chock full of knowledge. And I would listen to him on a on a podcast, and I would be like, oh my goodness, this is so overwhelming. There's just so much information. It's it's happening as we talk about it. It's not like studying history where you can it, where it, it has already happened, and and we're just saying, oh, well, here, here's what happened. I realize that that's not quite how history works where we know all the details after it happened. But it it things happen, they change. It's just so much to get into. And so I've just kind of like wondered, how on earth am I supposed to educate myself on foreign policy? I mean, where do you even begin to start? I mean, I, I don't even, I mean, just in terms of educating on how to dissect it all or how to digest it all, because I mean, it's just so overwhelming. Do you have any advice on that? Well, obviously, it's not easy. Um, I mean, the world is a messy, complex place. And I think the first thing is, I think, is for people to realize, you're in, you know, when you're in different positions in life, you have different responsibilities. I mean, you have a job, you're working, you're taking care of a family. You know, you're not going to become a policy nerd and become an expert on North Korean nuclear nonproliferation. So you shouldn't expect to have to. But I do think that what you want to do, number one, is to have a general knowledge of the world. It really does help to kind of understand where the major countries are and have a, you know, at least a, a broad sense of the sweep of history and America's involvement there. I do think travel is very useful. I mean, I think that to the extent that one can travel, at least some, it really is broadening. You know, what I found, you know, the world is an extraordinary place. I mean, on the one hand, people are so much like us. I mean, in the sense of how they deal with their kids, laughing with one another. I mean, a whole bunch of things. At the same time, places can be very different customs and cultures can be very different. So some exposure to that, I think, is very useful. And I think that the big thing is focusing on areas which seem to be most important. That is, you know, trying to get at least a bit more of a sense of what's going on in Syria, what's going on in, say, North Korea, and, and a sense in terms of what you think the U.S. can do. You don't need to know detail, but at least you have a reference point. So if somebody comes and says, you know, I have a great idea. I mean, I, I wanted us to go in Iraq, and that was a disaster. I wanted this in Libya. That was a disaster. I wanted this in Syria. That's a disaster. But now I have another new plan, and my new plan is something. Well, then you have a context to think, well, maybe that's not a good idea. You know, maybe this isn't the person we should be listening to. You know, to at least have some a reference point to try to judge. Finally, I, I urge people to have multiple information sources. I mean, everyone is biased. You know, so the point is, the danger, I think, now with the Internet is we tend to get in hives. You know, we only listen to the right-wing stuff. We only listen to the left-wing stuff. And that's very dangerous. Everybody has their bias. Everybody has their blind point. You know, your best bet is if you know what people are saying about one another. And you're going to be a far stronger advocate if you know the other side's arguments. You know, if you understand how they think and what they think. So, I mean, you know, I, you know, I get news, newspapers that are both conservative and liberal. I mean, I magazines that you know, try to be you know, get in international affairs. When I look online, you know, I get some of these you know, daily or weekly 
you know, services with some articles of note. I have ones from the left as well as the right. So I want to know what other people are thinking. So to the extent that people have time, and again, you're going to have to be measured, take it into account, given other responsibilities, but try to make sure you have more than just one side. You know, have a sense of what others are saying, too. What do you think is the biggest threat that we should be looking out for on the horizon? And, you know, are, are there threats that could come from within? As in, like, could we make such major missteps? Uh, and when I say we, I kind of think of just the U.S. It's what I'm really referring to here. The U.S., uh, you know, heads of state that make these de- decisions. Are there decisions that, that could kind of come from within? Are there threats in that regard? What's on the horizon that we ought to look out for? Well, domestically, I think the pro- there is a, a huge problem in terms of spending. You know, that basically American politicians don't want to have an honest conversation with the citizens of America. I mean, if you're really into it and you want to get a, read a horror document, you get a copy of the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the budget. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, we're, this year we'll have almost a trillion dollar deficit. I mean, Republicans have utterly exploded the deficit over the last year. They are not the party of fiscal responsibility, neither are the Democrats. You know, we're talking about trillion-dollar deficits for the rest of the decade. We're talking about a huge increase. And then beyond that, it gets even worse because of the explosion of entitlements. We're talking Social Security and Medicare in particular. The the question is, how do you afford that and have a really big military and all of these other things? I mean, the the big issue is roughly 85% of all spending is in like four different kind of blocks. I mean, basically, it's Social Security, it's the military. It's the healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and it's interest. Everything else is like 15% of the budget. And all Congress ever talks about is trying to cut that 15%. There's no solution. I mean, unless you talk about the other. Well, Americans have to be involved in this conversation. And I just don't see any politician who wants to do it. And I'm afraid it won't happen until the disaster hits and then we're Greece. I mean, it's where suddenly people wake up and realize there's no money. They've been promised pensions. They've been promised all this stuff. Can't afford it. Then we have social conflict. I mean, I think that's the big problem from within. We have to make some tough decisions. You know, somebody has to sit down and say, okay, where do we want to spend our money? Are we prepared to tax ourselves a lot more? Are we going to cut some programs? The sooner you do it, you know, then it's not as hard. The longer you wait, the more disastrous. So that's the domestic. Internationally, I think that China ultimately is probably the biggest challenge. I've grown much more concerned. I mean, China is essentially evolving into a quasi-totalitarian state. I mean, they're, they're you know, using kind of surveillance, iris scans. They're coming up with a sense of kind of social credit. You won't even be able to buy a plane ticket or a train ticket if you've been doing kind of bad things in the government's eyes. And we know this is not primarily going to be used against dissidents, but it'll be used against some other, you know, other people as well. A real crackdown on the Internet, crackdown on, you know, kind of activities tied to the West and liberal institutions, universities, and other things. I mean, a lot of, you know, they, the President Xi has eliminated term limits for his presidency. There's a lot of things that worry me. I don't think that militarily they're ever, you know, at least in any uh, time frame we can imagine, could imagine attacking America. But I think we are talking about a country that's exerting itself increasingly, using its economic power against American companies and stuff. That's a long-term issue, and I'm not sure how to handle it. And that's one I think internationally we should have to look at. Well, Doug, you've been a tremendous uh, insight for the listeners of this show. If they want to read more of what you do, uh, more of your work, what's the best place for them to kind of find you online? Well, the simplest probably would be Cato.org. You know, Cato puts most of my articles onto the system. 
I do a lot of writing for national interest. They can look up national interest online. I've just started a new column for American Conservative. My first column was up today looking at Turkey. I'm going to be doing that every Thursday. Certainly welcome them to come to the uh, American Conservative website. Yeah, I write for American Spectator. I write for National Review Online. Uh, I have a, a bo- body of uh, articles on Huffington Post. They don't take new ones anymore, but you know, there's a lot that, that are up there as well. I try to write you know, for different sides if I can. Again, I like to try to reach as many people as I can. But Cato.org is a, would be a starting point, but I'd encourage them to go to some of these other websites as well. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you for being with us on our podcast today. Sure. Happy to be on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.